You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. So whether I'm speaking to a crowded barroom about the principles of liberty, gushing over my love of Ayn Rand on a panel at Freedom Fest, or speaking to college kids about how the world of media and politics really function, I'm always meeting bright-eyed and bushy-tailed wannabe Hemingways with the potential for the next great American novel or book sitting right in their head. We live in a time where it's easier than ever to write, publish, and promote your book, but knowing how to do so and do so correctly is the biggest obstacle for many new authors. I've consulted for many authors writing everything from memoirs to how-to guides, and not one of them has the same path to success. If you're sitting on a completed manuscript wondering what to do next, or you need some one-on-one guidance on how to complete your book, I'm here to help you write, publish, and succeed. Email me today at the subject line, book, and I'll provide a 15-minute free consultation absolutely free. Oh, I already mentioned it was free. How about that? 15 minutes free. Check out my email in the show notes today and contact me with the subject line book for your free 15-minute private one-on-one author's consultation. And let's get started on your road to success. yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. All right, folks. So we're going to go ahead and get a chance to dive into a topic that no matter what day, pandemic or no pandemic, regardless of the topic that you're jumping into, self-publishing now seems to be something that more of you want to talk to me about, mainly because a lot of you are thinking, shit, if that moron can do it, it must be remarkably easy. And I'm here to tell you, yes, this moron did do it twice. And it's not remarkably easy, but it's enough for me to do it. And it's enough for a lot of people to do it. Because when it comes to the great equalizer that is the internet, it allows anybody to go ahead and jump through conventional means to go and put their product out directly to consumers. And it's one thing for me to go ahead and tell you my personal journey, self-publishing, but I wanted to go ahead and bring in other people because no one person is going to have the same path as another. Um, I had about six different clients over the past month, people writing memoirs, people writing fiction, people writing uh, nonfiction, people writing textbooks, more people who want to self-publish, people who want traditionally published, and not one of them is the same. So I wanted to go ahead and bring on my good friend, Matt Wright. He's self-published two books, and he's always working on many different projects, especially over at Muddy Waters of Freedom. Go ahead and check out muddywatersoffreedom.com. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the program. Hey, what's going on, Renzo? Good to, good to be here. Good to see you. It's been a while since uh, we've done one of these. Since before the plague. It, yes, it was definitely before the plague. It was definitely before that. I think the last time one of us was, I think it was when you had just done your uh, I Worship Satan book. Oh, how, how to Contact the Devil and Other Demons. Right. Available yeah, that... on Amazon and the dark web <laughs> right now. Um, it was right after that. I think you came on my show and we, uh, and we discussed it for a while. Um, yeah, we, we, we summoned... Uh, succubuses and other things to go after our enemies. No, no fatalities, but several accusations of manslaughter. So it worked out. Very true. Very, very true. Very true. So Matt, you can't read. 
yet somehow you're actually able to write books. Yeah, it's actually really a, it's, it's an amazing phenomenon uh, where I absolutely cannot read, especially anything that you write. Um, but sometimes it's not in English. <laughs> that's fair. Um, but I've always uh, had a gift at being able to type really fast, even though I have no idea what the words are that are coming out. Uh, <laughs> I can't, I can't keep it up, folks. Um, <laughs> it's it, it's always it's always great to meet other writers and I've known Matt for around two years now. And, um, when you first started getting into writing is, as we've both discussed, you, you published your first novel, um, diary was, it was diary of an addict, right? Right. Dear Jack diary of an addict. Yeah. And that, I, I don't, I don't correct me if I'm wrong. You did not intend on initially publishing that. That was really more of a journal for you to get through a rather difficult stage of your life. But when you finally, you know, got to the point where you're like, wow, this is actually something that people might be interested in. You went back, you dusted it off and you published it as a book. What was kind of your thought process? Did you ever actually intend on publishing that eventually? Or was it something where you're like, if it happens, it happens, but otherwise writing is really just for me. Right. Yeah. No. So when I first wrote uh, Dear Jack, it was when I was coming off of a lot of very hard drugs and I was reading an old diary of mine and the diary entries in the book are most of them, a few of them I had to make up for the book, but they were very, it it detailed my descent into addiction. And then when I, so I was like, man, I could turn this into a story. And I just started writing about uh, these characters who were coming together to help somebody get off drugs. And I think it was my own mental way to help me do it. And it took me a couple of months to do it. And anytime that I was feeling the urge to do anything, uh, I was sitting at a computer and I was just typing away and just doing my absolute hardest to not relapse. Um, and that was where that book came from. And then I finished it. I sent it to uh, my sister, who at the time was an editor. Uh, she gave it a once over. She gave it a once over and she... Um, she was like, yeah, it's good. You're going to have to polish it up. And I said, well, I kind of just wrote it for me. Just wanted your opinion. She goes, no, it's good. I like it. I said, great. And then I put it away. And then 10 years later, I didn't have anything to work on. So I started working on it again. That wasn't true. It wasn't 10 years. It was five years. Still uh, five years. <laughs> yeah. I, I lose things that I put in my uh, in, in a random folder on my laptop two weeks ago. Nonetheless, five years. Right. Yeah. No, it, I actually found it on accident. <laughs> It was, it was on a old heart. It was on a, not a, 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 you know, those things, the things. Um, Thumb drive. Thumb drive. Yeah. It was on a, it was on a thumb drive that I found and I was like, huh, I wonder what's on this. And I found it and I said, oh, well, I'll work on that again because I don't have anything else right now. So I wrote it again and then I was like, well, yeah, I like it. And I thought about like going for a, a, not self-published option. So I sent it out to a few publishers. They all rejected it. And so I just put it back away. I said, all right. I wrote this when I was in my early 20s. Not really all that worried about it. Um, And I wasn't sure if I wanted to do the novel thing at the time. And then when I quit drinking alcohol years later, I brushed it back out, touched it up more, and then I just self-published it. Um, when you went ahead and sent off the manuscript to different publishers, what type of feedback did you get? 
mainly form letters. Uh, it was mainly form letters. Most of them were saying, uh, we don't accept work that's not represented. Um, you need to have an agent and agents only wanted people who already had something published. And so I was kind of stuck in this cycle of, I need an agent to get published, but I need to get published to get an agent. And I was right there. And it's it's a vicious cycle. And, And that's the one thing that really you know, deters a lot of people. And I, I tell all my, all my clients, uh, when I work with them, you, you need to understand, I don't have anything really against the idea or the function of getting a literary agent. But I think if you can avoid it and just go straight with a publicist, that will be better. Um, because one, one of the big things most from, from what I've seen, while you do have to be part of a certain network to be a literary agent, most publishers don't really care. What they care about is really this illusion of you're a little bit bigger than you are. So if you're paying a publicist, that person is one, they're working directly for you. Um, you are really their only focus. Secondly, they have more of an incentive to keep going because they they want to keep the contract getting extended. Whereas with an agent, most agents, people don't know this, you can't hire an agent. You technically send your manuscript off to people and then an agent has to decide whether or not your book is worth it. So even then, it, it creates this real strange relationship, which isn't that of a client and a business. It, it's more of like this strange partnership where you're constantly being dangled around by a puppet by either these publishers or the agent. And then at worst cases, agents will sometimes uh, force writers, especially a lot of new writers, into an agreement where they sometimes own some of the lifetime royalties for those right. books. So, I mean, just right there, what we see is this giant barrier to entry, which is a lot like the art world. Um, you know, a lot of people can't get a gallery put on for their uh, to display their work unless they have somebody that's willing to go represent them and pitch them to different art houses. Is there really anything saying you can't do it yourself? No, but you lose the sense of legitimacy. It's, it's ridiculous because wh- how, many, how many great books have not been published because of this dated, just completely irrelevant system that the publishing world has in place? And that is actually something that I've thought of numerous times where you're going to have the fact that Jack Kerouac, and I love Jack Kerouac before anybody thinks I'm, you know, like crapping on him here because I'm not, but Jack Kerouac wrote On the Road. It is a rambling mess of a book. I think it really fits for the time that it was, but it is a rambling mess of a book. We run on sentences and uh, run on sentences and he just kind of jumps around a whole lot and you can't really follow Like you can follow the storyline, but it's also like, this just sounds like somebody that's on Benzedrine, just typing it out as quickly as possible, which is what it is. Um, if you wrote that book today, you would not be, nobody would pick you up. They'd be like, they would say, you are just some crazy drug addict trying to emulate the 1960s and 50s. And you would not be able to be picked up. No agent would take it. They, they wouldn't be able to sell it. So I think that there are tons of books out there written by a multi, like just a wide array of people that are probably excellent, excellent books, but either because they don't know how to get an agent or a publicist, or they don't know uh, just the right people, they're never going to be able to 
you'll, you will never be able to read these books. Only their friends and family do. Absolutely. And I mean, that's that, from my that, experience. Their friends don't actually read them. They just, oh, rarely, rarely. Yeah. A lot of people, and I see this even with people who just go buy books that, uh, like Barnes and Noble, they'll buy books because they want to be seen with the book because they want people to think they read it. How many fake libraries have we all seen at one point? We all do it. We all do it. But I mean, what, what you bring up is something incredibly important. The great thing about self-publishing is that everybody can self-publish. That's also the terrible thing. And that's what brings out a lot of the bad uh, presuppositions about people who self-publish. They, you know, people ask, um, and this, this actually rarely happens because it's not usually the question that a lot of people ask, but, you know, occasionally you get it. Um, did you self-publish? Because usually the, the first gut instinct is, oh, there's something wrong with it, or oh, it's not good, or oh, what did you do badly, or oh, why would you do that? It must mean that your book should have never been published to begin with. But I mean, whether it's Fifty Shades of Grey or The Martian, there's always going to be authors out there that hit it big. So for every very poorly uh, self-published erotica novel you find for 99 cents on Amazon or for free on uh, Kindle, there's going to be good books out there. Right. What what were what were some of the worries that you had when you realized, okay, I want this to come out somehow? I'm going to go ahead and just do it myself. Uh, some of the worries that I had, like I was not expecting it to become a hit and I was correct. It definitely did not become a hit. Um, but I, my main worries were people who bought it and then reviewed it on Amazon who hated it because mm -hmm. I was not sure if I was going to be able to handle that kind of criticism about the book. That was me bearing everything. Um, especially a book that I was writing just strictly for, you know, ther therapeutic reasons. Um, so that was my main concern about it. I didn't care if it became a hit. I just wanted to really have my own book out there because I'd always wanted it. So I decided to do it. And then I figured I would never do it again after that. So that was my main concern was just how people that I didn't know would react to it. Yeah. And that, I mean, that, that is definitely a fear I think everybody has. And this right. goes for both self-published authors and traditionally published authors, um, you know, the, the same. It's, it's always, and it's always when you put yourself out there that you're going to get criticism. And the thing that I had to learn myself is that there are going to be people who love it. There are going to be people who hate it. And there are going to be people who just don't have an opinion. They're already out there by me doing this. I'm just going to see where people stand on it. Right. And that, you know, it's still, it, criticism hurts, especially when it's done just to like blatantly attack you. Um, there were problems with my first book because it was my first book that still bother me. And there have been times where I'm like, oh, maybe I should take it off the store. But then again, I, I meet twice as many people that read it and they like it. And then it's like, no, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it up there. Um, that is definitely something that I can tell people doesn't get any better, but it certainly becomes more bearable, if that makes sense. Right. And from everybody that read it, I've gotten a few negative reviews from some people 
from some people that I know. Um, and to those people, I don't really like them all that much. So I just think <laughs> they're idiots. Uh, but f- to anybody that I had like an ounce of respect for, they all either lied straight to my face convincingly or they liked it. And I go with, they liked it. Um, and that's really all that matters. As long as my friends and family actually like it, that's all I was really going for on that one. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where I, I think I was in a better position than most other self-published authors because I was so accustomed to promoting businesses and promoting candidates. It became very easy for me to sell other people, though I had never really sold myself in a way. So I had the floodgates of people. And what was really funny was almost none of my friends and family read my first book. It wasn't until they heard other people reading my book that I think they felt guilted into reading it, especially when it became a bestseller. It became a bestseller after about a month and a half. So about day 40, uh, it came out and then everyone started picking it up. But I I mean, ultimately, folks, you got to understand, and and this is why I tell people when you get rejection letters from publishers, there are two things you need to understand. One, there's more than enough publishers out there if that's the way you want to go. It's just really a numbers game. There is somebody who's going to want to publish it. It's just finding the one. So if you're willing to be really patient and play that game, you're going to find them. So don't think that no one will publish your book. There are plenty of places that will publish it. I did not have that patience. I realized, and my criticism from some editors was that my uh, first book, Stay Away from the Libertarians, was too much of a niche market. And I understand that. Who's really going to want to buy a comedic retelling of the modern libertarian movement? I'm going for like the splitting of hairs of hairs of hairs. Like I'm going micro. But I knew that that audience was out there. All I had to do was come up with a really good marketing campaign and find them because there were enough people to justify the costs of self-publishing. And that's ultimately it. If you publish your book, there are going to be people out there that will buy it. And secondly, understand, I mean, understand why I just mentioned at the end of it. So the first part was there's always going, if you want to traditionally publish, there is somebody to do it. It's just going to take a lot of time and effort. But secondly, once you publish it, there will be people that want to buy it and will like it. You just have to find them and do that. Um, Moving on to your second book, what were some of the things that you learned from your first one that you were able to take into your second go around in order to kind of improve things and make it easier? Uh, well, <clears throat> my second one I wrote, my second one, I, I, I started working on that one when I first moved to Florida from Tennessee. Um, and I was dating a girl who for lack of any other term it was literally batshit crazy um and not like the girl typical female crazy that guys florida woman crazy right not florida woman crazy no she um (laughs) she was uh she was legitimately she was a alcoholic sex addict uh with dissociative identity disorder and while we were dating there were some crazy moments and she was telling me a little bit about her backstory. And I said, man, this would be a really crazy story to write. And she said, please never write this. (laughs) And then she cheated on me and uh, with a bunch of my friends and we broke up and I said, well, now I'm going to write that story because I know it all. So there you go. 
<laughs> so, um, you know, I, I pulled a lot more from personal, ex- like, this is going to sound weird because the other one was about me getting off of drugs, but I included a bunch of other people. That story is literally me and her together. I changed the main, the, the guy character a little bit. Um, I made him a lot more depressed than I actually am. Um, and then outside of that, all the conversations are pretty much real conversations that I had with her and her different personalities. That's a, that was a hard book to get through. <laughs> it was good. Like I like watching train wrecks and places on fire, but like, yeah, it was, it was something Yeah, in a, in a positive way, like in a positive way, no, I, it, was, I, it was hard to get through because yeah. you're reading this and it's like, okay, I got to put it down because I need to process that last page. Yeah, there was a lot in that book. And all of those are, most of those are real conversations that were had. And reading it on the page is brutal. Like just seeing it, because you do, you have to process it. When you're in the middle of the conversation, you have that much time to process it. Like you just have to process it right then, right now. And that was what I tried to portray him doing while continuing the conversation and i were, were, were you ever tempted to change things because you were like oh I, I don't know how other people are gonna take this were you ever tempted to try and you know adjust what was being written because you had the audience in mind or did you want to just go ahead and write it and kind of let the cards the chips fall where they may i just wanted the chips to fall where they like i wanted to I wanted it to be brutal. I wanted it to be heartbreaking. And I wanted people to like feel everything that she felt and that, you know, that I felt during these conversations. And I felt the best way to do it was to just make it as graphic as I possibly could in those descriptions. Like, and there are moments in there where she's talking about previous abuse uh, that she went through and, she stops short of saying whatever it was, but she describes it in a way that leaves it up to your brain. Uh And she, that was how it was described to me because it was being told to me by, you know, a 12 year old sort of, you know, they're talking like a mentally functioning person. You weren't literally dating a 12 year old. Right. (laughs) So she had multiple, like because she had dissociative identity disorder, she had multiple personalities and they were, uh, the ages of 6, 12, 16, 18, and 34. And she was 24 at the time. So when you were talking to the 12-year-old, it was like you were talking to a 12-year-old. They had the same, like it stops right there. I I never asked you this when the book came out. Is that kind of like schizophrenia or is that a separate thing? That's a separate thing. A lot of people get those two things mixed up. Um, when you talk about schizophrenia, that is a mental disorder that is created. I I don't know where that one stems from, but a lot of that is going to affect how you see light and how you hear sound and they kind of get mixed together Mm -hmm. and you will see things that other people don't. Um, and it makes you kind of lose it because you have a deteriorating brain. Dissociative identity disorder is usually usually you see it in people who have seen just humongous amounts of trauma in their lifetime. And 
what their bodies did to deal with the trauma they were going through at the time was create a protective identity. Kind of like compartmentalization. Sort of. And the main, the main personality would dissociate and a new one would appear. And whenever she had these uh, bouts of trauma throughout her life, we're at the ages of 6, 12, 16, 18. And I don't know how the 30-year-old got in there, but there was one. Um, but that was how, and I think that was just sort of the protector of all of them was the 30-something-year-old. I can't remember how old that one was. Um, and so that one's from uh, great amounts of trauma where the other one is actually a mental issue. Got it. One's more behavioral and less actual brain chemistry, psychological. Got did you it. Watch, uh, I, know you're, I know you're a DC guy. Um, did you watch Doom Patrol? Oh, yeah. Uh, Crazy Jane. Crazy Jane. Now, okay, so I think it's episode eight is Jane Patrol. I think it's episode Yeah, when basically in that episode, she gets lost in her mind and you see all of her different right. personas. So, okay, the way that dissociative identity disorder was described to me by her, uh, by the girl that I was seeing, who in the book, I only refer to her as her, she, I never say her name because I didn't want to get sued. Um, But so the way that she described it to me was she's the driver of the bus. Every once in a while, somebody else would take over the wheel and be driving and she would be sitting in the back. And that was how it was described. So when I was watching uh, Jane Patrol, uh, they had a train that was driving people to to be the lead, to be the personality that was coming out. Right. And the way that it was all sort of described to me was the way, the way that it was in the uh, show was almost identical to how it was described to me by her. So. Oh, wow the way that they described it in the show, the way that they portrayed it is actually pretty spot on based on what she told me. And then based on what I researched about it. So I, okay, here, here's a question. Um, and I think this applies to both fiction writers and nonfiction writers. Um, basically writing about topics that, and this is more of like, I'll call it a social justice criticism but I do think it does have some legs to stand on. Basically, when people write about people, events, or situations that they were not inherently a part of or at literally a part of, how do they write it in a way which is authentic as possible? And I, I do understand this. For my second book, As Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship, I was writing about a hardcore Southern segregationist during the Civil Rights Movement. For that part. And then you have the story of Art Brown, which is a fictional parallel story running in the book. I had to do a ton of research to go ahead and write that. But as I've told people, one of the reasons why I felt more so comfortable writing it um, was actually not just because I had researched it and I felt like I could do it justice, but also because I lived in Alabama for uh, several years. I knew people that were alive when George Wallace was governor. Um, you were, you know, you, your, your male, your male protagonist in 
um, Can You Keep a Secret, is based off of you, but you're also writing about this other person. As you were going through the process, did you really just go ahead and write it as kind of like a stream of consciousness to go ahead and get the plot out? Or did you have to go back and maybe try and do a little bit more research to sketch out the character a bit more for readers? Uh, No, for... um... So, and so, I just want to state, this never fucking applies to fiction. If I write about a gay dragon from Mars who shoots out cotton candy, no one's ever like, well, have you ever met a gay lesbian dragon from Mars that shoots out cotton candy? It's always, it's always for stuff that's popular, like Joker. It's like, well, have you ever been a crazy person? No, that doesn't mean I'm going to go ahead and cast serial killers in all my freaking movies. But it does have some, <laughs> some validity. There, there's my rant. <laughs> Um, so when we were dating, I was doing a lot of research on the topic because when, when you meet somebody who says that they have dissociative identity disorder, your initial reaction is no, you don't. There is no way I just met somebody with that. It's like women of gluten intolerance, right? You just assume that. And I just like, I just assumed that she was lying. So I started doing a lot of research on it. Because I wanted to catch her. I wanted to catch her in this lie. So, you know, lots of trust issues already at the beginning here. Um, But so I wanted to catch her in this lie. So I was doing so much research. And the more I researched it, the more I realized she was not lying about anything. But because I did all the research, I was able to take all of it and put it into the book. There's one thing in the book that is not factual. Like you can't do it but I put it in because otherwise it wouldn't have made sense. And it wouldn't want it to be a good story. Right. As well. Right. Cause uh, they go to SLAA meetings, sex and love addicts anonymous. Um, Is that real? That's real. Oh yeah. That's a, that's a hundred percent real. I, I only know what groups, what group therapies are real based off fight club. Right. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I get that. Um, and if you ever saw, if you ever read a uh, choke, the other book. Oh yeah, by uh, Chuck. By too hard Chuck to pronounce his last name. Chuck Palinuk. 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 Uh, Pala, Pal- I always, for like three years, I thought it was Palunik, and right. then somebody at a library looked at me like I was a giant retard, and I was like, ah, okay, I'm just not gonna say his name. I'm just gonna say Fight Club guy. So right. Uh, so he um, wrote in in the movie or in the book Choke. I don't know why I keep calling it a movie. I know where there is a movie, but I've never seen it. It has a Sam Rockwell. It's actually, yeah. it's not fight club, but it's good. It's yeah. That, and I've always wanted to see it, but I don't ever know where to find don't it. Don't pay money for it. Yeah. I wasn't planning on that. <laughs> um, it's good if it's free. Right. Like the if you're stuck was, on an airplane, the book was fantastic. The book yeah. is, the book is bitingly funny and just sarcastic as all hell, but in it, he is picking up women at sex addicts meetings. You can't do that. You need to have a doctor's note saying to go there. You can't just go there. Uh, Was it because of that book? (laughs) (laughs) That's a serious question. It's like, okay, like I always wonder, were there stories about haunted hotels from people before The Shining came out? It's really hard to find that. So now I'm applying that same logic to a lot of things. It's like, did this happen before this became a thing in pop culture? Right. 
but that's a whole other tangent. That, yeah, right. That, that, that's, yeah, and that's actually a good point. I don't know if you could get into SLAA meetings before Choke came out, but and then they're like, oh, wait, this is actually a really good point. We shouldn't just let randos come in here uh, <laughs> in the sex addicts meeting so they can get just walk out and be like, so just want to go to my car or what? Um, We're going to the bathroom stall, like from Choke. Right. If you haven't read that, that book gets to it in like the first and second chapter. Like if you're like, oh, I want to get to the good stuff. It just gives it to you up front. And you're like, I don't know. This is what I signed up for. <laughs> I think, I think the opening of that book is something along the lines. I'm going to have to paraphrase the crap out of this. Cause it's been years, but I think it opens up with, I was sitting in the meeting and everyone was here. The girl who uh, got caught with peanut butter and her dog was here. The guy who uh, was masturbating at church was here. The Every single uh, urban legend that you have ever heard about anybody doing anything sexually deviant, all of those people are here in this sex addicts meeting. And it's something like that. And immediately I went, well, I'm sold. Wait, <laughs> I don't care what comes next in this the rest of this book can be the worst book i've ever read but i'm always going to remember this opening and that's going to make it great it's it, it's so crazy and i i think he is what one thing i love about chuck palloon chuck palunic chuck palunic fucking fight club guy <laughs> is that I, he was he was a journalist before he got into creative writing. So he writes his stories really the way a journalist would create a narrative report or a narrative commentary piece, uh, very much so in the vein of Hunter Thompson, mm-hmm. my favorite writer of all time. And it, it's people like that. It's when you're, you're diving into a story, don't let the topic itself be so intimidating that you don't want to write it. But if you do it, understand you're going to have to put some work into it when you're thinking about it, when you're writing it, especially afterwards. I found that after the first draft of How to Succeed, I was still having to go back and double check things because I wanted it to be good. But if let's say I got... Like, uh, I, I think somebody called me out on it. I have one of the characters in the George Wallace storyline driving a car that was not available in the 70s. I get it. That's a good thing. Uh, I don't remember why I specifically put that in there, but it doesn't bother me. Stuff like that's going to happen. Right. And I haven't really ever done a period piece that, took, like, that takes place in the past. I am currently working on... It's a bitch. Yeah. It's fun, but it is a bitch in it. Yeah, because you have to make sure that you get everything right. There is somebody out there that does know more than you, and that person will find you, and that person will rip you a new asshole. I'm just lucky that it was the car. (laughs) Because if I got anything else wrong, then I'm dealing with historical revisionism, with real hard shit. Yeah, I'm working on a book in the future. And for that, it really doesn't matter. You can make up whatever you want, but you don't have to get anything right um, because it's the future. And if you're wrong, it's like, well, all right. At least I... It's, it's like Star Wars. Do you ever see like the original trilogy and you're like, that's what they thought the future in space would be like? It's almost less technologically advanced than right now. Well, that's because Star Wars happened a long time ago. 
in the galaxy far, far away. Correct. Yeah, it's, it's actually a history. Technically. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when, uh, when you finished the manuscript for Can You Keep a Secret, did you want to go the self-publishing route again? Or did you think maybe this time I'll try and get it traditionally published? I thought because about... I feel like... When, I'm sorry I cut you off. I feel like once you've done it by yourself, it's really a lot less intimidating. And you're just like, I might as well do it. Yeah, once I, um, once I finished the manuscript, I uh, sent it off to my editor who did an amazing job. I would definitely recommend her to anybody who could possibly want editing work done um except now she's really busy with her real job um but she um she read it and she goes you could get this published like through a real publishing house and i said oh do you have an agent or a publicist for me and she said no and i said well then no i can't um and she goes are you just going to self-publish again and i said yes and she goes well i think it'll be a bigger hit than uh dear jack no it wasn't but i think it's a better book um how to succeed sells terribly. I admit it. I tell people. I think part of it is because of Corona, but I also know part of it's a lie because it wasn't doing well before Corona. Right. But I still love that book. Like it's it it is more so of my first like true love of a book more so than my first book. Right. And, and that's I how I feel bad about it. That's how I feel about Can You Keep a Secret? Like it's my second book, but I love it so much more than my first. Mm-hmm. Because there was something about that book that for a lot of that book, I legitimately shut my brain off and it is a stream of consciousness just coming out. And a lot of times it doesn't even seem to make, it doesn't seem to make sense for the storyline until you get through everything. And then it's like, Oh, all of it this all, stuff is, connects. yeah, it all connects and it's all important. Even his random thoughts, which were legitimately like there's one part in there where I'm saying something about uh, he was looking at her and he realized that he knew and he realized that he knew that they wouldn't be together forever. Uh, and all he wanted to do was have sex with the blonde girl with the whatever. And that's because a blonde girl that I wanted to have sex with had walked in the door of the uh, coffee shop that I was at at the time. And I was just kind of, why not? just keep typing because that was where my brain went and wherever my brain went was where his went. And it was, it was, it was a strange experiment to try to do since he doesn't say a word throughout the book and everything that he says is internal monologue. So there is a lot of random things that lead to the story that are in his brain. Yeah. It's almost like, um, like the great Gatsby in a way, because I, I I personally hate the character of Nick Carraway. Yeah. I think he's a sociopath. Yes. Because he just watches all this stuff and he's like a spectator to it, but he never says anything. And it's like, you, you, you fucking psychopath do something. <laughs> so I, I, you know, that's definitely a way to do it. But I mean, to kind of wrap up everything together, folks understand that if you want to write, if you're not doing it for yourself, there's no point in doing it because I know plenty of people that wrote books that made them a ton of money and made them famous, but they wrote it because they were on contract to write it. And there's genuinely no passion in it. Um, I know people that write books because they want to be an author 
but they pushed out something just to meet the basic criteria that they weren't passionate about. And some of them were successes, some of them weren't. But everyone I do know that has either published traditionally or self-published who did it because they genuinely loved writing ultimately would not have had it any other way. That's, I would agree with that hundred percent. Like I write everything that I write is because I want to write that book at that time. I've got a, a detective mystery novel uh, coming out sometime soon. I'm not really sure. Uh, it's, it's done. I'm just waiting on the final edit for it. Um, That'll be cool. And I, I was talking to my now girlfriend uh, at the time and she, and I had a week off and I said, I don't know what to do with myself. I have a week off. And she said, well, write something. I said, I don't know what I'd write. And she goes, is there anything you've always wanted to write? And I said, yeah, I want to write a detective novel, a murder mystery. And she goes, well, write that. And so I sat down and I pumped it out short. It's only like 40,000 words. And like, and that's all I wanted. I just wanted to do a short little detective novella, like a pulp thing. And I did it. I knocked it out. Um, and everybody that's read it has told me that they love it. So I was like, okay, great. Now I can move ahead. I got to bring you on to talk about that. When it comes to, you know, pulp noir stories, Dick Tracy, I eat that shit up like it's going out of style. Uh, Matt, I've got to let you go in a few minutes. I just want to ask if there's any advice that, you know, any, any couple of things that you want to go ahead and let new and aspiring authors know to kind of help them along their journey, whether they're doing the self-publishing route or the traditional publishing route, I think either is good for anybody that's willing to commit to it. What would your tips be? The most important thing, uh, and everybody's going to say, everybody's going to say this, uh, write about what you know, a hundred percent accurate, write about what you know. If you have a fantastic imagination and you can work on sci-fi, which I can't do, knock yourself out. You probably can do it. I can't. Um, but the most important thing you can do as a writer is to write every day, every day. Do Absolutely. Not if you miss like a Sunday or, you know, a Saturday here or there, that's fine. But write every single day that you possibly can, because that keeps the skills sharpened. It keeps them honed and it just makes your writing better. Have you ever felt sick when you don't, when you go a few days without writing? Yes. That's a real thing. That is a real thing. Absolutely. It, it, it cures my depressions. Like I'll sit there and I'll just be feeling crappy and I'm just like, I don't understand it. And I'll sit down and I won't want to write, but I'll just start typing. And then all of a sudden I feel so much better as soon as I get through anything. It doesn't even have to be good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like folks, I mean, I, that's, that's key. If you are a writer, you can't just call yourself that. It's like calling yourself a runner and you never run. So to be a writer, you don't even have to be published. It's just the act of passion, of, of writing for the things that you love and the things that you're passionate about. Whether you publish it or not, I've written articles, op-eds, short stories, a whole bunch of shit that will never see the light of day. But I'm glad I did it because I love it and I had to do it. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the program. I'm going to go ahead and link to both of your books and we're going to have to have you on again for when your detective novel comes out. If people want to keep up with you and everything you're doing at the Muddy Waters of Freedom, check out your show, The Writer's Block. How can they do so? Uh, You can uh, find 
all of our stuff at uh, Muddied Waters Media or MuddiedWatersOfFreedom.com. Either one of those will get you to the same spot. Um, and then we are on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on, if we're on, we're on social media. If you have a preferred social media, we are on it. You know how Al Gore's amazing internet works, folks. <laughs> and as always, you know, let's keep this conversation going. I do author consultations for people. If you go ahead and email me with the subject header of book, I'll give you 15 minutes free. We can cram as much as you want. And if you never want to talk to me again, that's fine. I just want to connect with people, expand my network, help you out. And if you want to go ahead and decide whether or not you want to self-publish or traditionally publish, I can help you with that. And as always, find me everywhere at Hey Remso, H-E-Y-R-E-M-S-O. And I'm on the Parlor app, just at Remso. If you ever see Remso 2 pop up, call that person a loser. As always, you're listening to On The Run. I'm Remso W. Martinez. Good night. shows and more from the We Are Libertarians network at wearelibertarians.com.